Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States. Episode 1.6, Return to America. Well, hello and welcome back to the Political History of the United States. We are ready to jump right back in and I hope you guys all had a wonderful holiday. This week, we are going to finally conclude our survey of Europe on the eve of the Jamestown colony. We are going to return to the Americas and see what's been going on there since we last left. Glancing back, the last time we talked about anything to do with the Americas directly, we were busy discussing guys like Columbus. This week, we are going to spend some time rectifying that problem. Before we stick our plucky settlers on a ship out to Virginia, we are going to take some time to look back at what's been happening in the New World over the past 100 years. We are going to focus primarily on North America, as that's where our story is going to be taking place, and we are going to be looking at where the various European powers were, what they were working on, and take a broader look at how things have been developing in the Americas. Now, I do want to address the elephant in the room. Obviously, I am completely aware that Europeans are not the only people in the Americas. However, to even attempt to detail all of the Native American tribes living in the Americas would be virtually impossible for me to handle. Native American populations are going to be a big deal in our story, and we're going to address them frequently. And while I wish I could introduce them all up front, that's just not going to be possible. It's going to be way too overwhelming. Instead, I plan to introduce the individual groups and the individual Native Americans as they come into our story. To begin this week, I want to very quickly chronicle what the Spanish have been doing since we last left them. Following Columbus, two primary powers had emerged in South America the Spanish, and the Portuguese. So, as a quick recap of our very first episode, in 1594, the Treaty of Tordesillas drew a line through South America. Portugal got everything to the east, and Spain got everything to the west. Now, the treaty was never that strictly followed. The Spanish allowed Portuguese expansion in Brazil, well west of the treaty's line. And in later years, when the other European nations decided to join into the colonization game, they basically just ignored the treaty entirely. The initial impression of the Americas, from a business standpoint, was one of disappointment. Remember that the purpose of Columbus's expedition had been to find a route to India. Not only were the Americas not India, but they presented a continent-sized obstacle in between Europe and India. There was some evidence of some gold in the Americas, however, this is something that's still being discovered throughout the 16th century. But native peoples were seen wearing it, which means that at least it left the hope open that precious metals did exist there. Beyond that, however, Europeans found little really to excite them about the New World, initially. The first financial success came from the Spanish in the early 16th century on the island of Hispaniola. Well, some gold had been previously found, the real profits came primarily from two crops, sugar and tobacco. And I'm going to tell you right now that these two crops in particular are going to remain a very important part of our story as we move forward. Spain would grow their empire substantially between 1509 and 1525. The Spanish conquered Puerto Rico, Jamaica, and Cuba. They established trading posts throughout the New World. And in 1519, Hernando Cortes invaded the Aztec Empire, which would succumb in 1524. A decade later, the Inca Empire in Peru would meet the same fate as the Aztecs. Through these conquests, Spain became the largest empire in Europe. The Spanish dominated South America and the Caribbean, a position that they're going to hold largely throughout the 16th century and basically all the way up into the 19th century. 
Spain was not alone in attempting to exploit the resources of the Americas and set up colonies. In episode 1.1, we had discussed some of the other expeditions, many of which continued to look for passages to the Pacific. By 1600, the French had begun fishing off the coast of Newfoundland, and interest in the fur trade was also growing around this time. Likewise, in around 1600, the French would establish a small colony around the fur trade in the area of modern-day Quebec. So, well, countries were at least beginning to colonize the Americas, these attempts paled in comparison to what the Spanish, and to a lesser extent, the Portuguese had already done. Desperate to compete with the Spanish but unable to match their empire, many European powers instead turned towards piracy against the Spanish in order to have their share of the goods. Turning our attention to what would eventually become the United States, we begin to see real exploration right in the 1520s. Alvar Nunez Cabeza de Vaca, a Spanish conquistador, had begun exploring North America in 1528. De Vaca and his men had landed near Tampa Bay and had moved through the southern portion of the future United States, eventually ending up off the Texas coast near modern-day Galveston. De Vaca began the trek as the second-in-command of the Navarrez expedition, which, spoiler alert, is not going to go well. The journey's leader, Panfilio de Navarrez, is remembered as being relatively incompetent. Initially, the expedition moved through the inland swamps of Florida. However, they were met with fierce and constant resistance from the local Appalachian tribes. These attacks forced the expedition to move back towards the Florida coastline. Instead of moving by land, the Spanish decided that it would be much safer to instead move around the Gulf on barges, thus avoiding the local tribes. And this worked okay initially. However, things turned bad towards what is Galveston Island in Texas, when the barges broke apart and killed all but four of the men on the expedition, including Navarrez himself. Among the survivors, however, was De Vaca, who was now in command of the remaining men. The local Karanaqua Indian tribe found the men, and they were quickly captured and enslaved by the tribe. As is well documented, along with the Spanish came the arrival of the diseases that would so decimate these tribes in the coming years. The assumptions of the tribe were that the Spanish who brought the illnesses would also be able to cure them. Suddenly, De Vaca and his men, despite no medical training, found themselves being named as faith healers. This ended up being a fortuitous thing for the men as they became honored men amongst the tribe for their healing abilities. As an interesting aside, this does spark a minor theological debate between the tribe and Devaka. The local chiefs believe that the power of healing derived from the men themselves, but Devaka, the devout Catholic as ever, insisted that his healing power was coming from God and that he was simply the conduit. The debate over religion isn't going away anytime soon, as in the future we are going to see missions established to begin converting the local populations to Catholicism. Along with the Karanaqua Indians, Devaca and his men would travel south through Texas and entering into New Mexico, before going south again into northwestern Mexico. Through his time with the local tribe, Devaca saw firsthand the destruction being left behind by the Spanish conquistadors. Devaca wrote about this time saying, It made us extremely sad to see how fertile the land was, and very beautiful, and very full of springs and rivers, and to see every place deserted and burned, and the people so thin and ill, all of them fled and hidden. Eight years after having disappeared, Devaca would come back into contact with the Spanish in Mexico. Upon returning to Spain, Devaca proved to be a different voice in the conversation. 
At the time, the Spanish practice was one of conquest. The men sent over there were conquistadors, the Spanish word for conqueror. De Vaca, however, had seen the resourcefulness of the native tribes. Gaining both empathy towards them as well as knowledge of how useful they could be, De Vaca promoted a policy of pacification and became staunchly opposed to outright conquest. The Spanish at this time, however, had little interest in this idea. Conquest was the name of the game. That being said, though, Devaca does make a difference. While the Spanish were unwilling to give up conquest outright, they did begin the slow process of curbing unregulated conquest. Finally, understanding the importance of good relations with the natives, the Crown instructed those heading to the Americas that native casualties should be kept to a minimum and enslaving local populations should be avoided. Well, questionable how much of a difference this actually makes in reality as opposed to in policy, it does, at a minimum, mark the beginning of a change in thinking amongst the Spanish crown. I want to look at two other expeditions through North America today, specifically those of Hernando de Soto and Francisco Vazquez de Coronado. If de Vaca was the voice of pacifism, de Soto was, in fact, the polar opposite. De Soto had earned a reputation of being exceptionally brutal, and viewed conquest as his only objective. De Soto was interested in rivaling Cortes himself, and journeyed to North America, hoping to find his own Aztec empire to conquer. Landing in 1539, De Soto made port in Tampa Bay and immediately marched north. De Soto, along with 600 men, traveled through portions of Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Tennessee, Alabama, Mississippi, Arkansas, and Texas. The march by DeSoto was absolutely brutal. Native tribes saw their food supplies raided. Indians were captured and held ransom for more maize. DeSoto and his men employed a campaign of terror to subdue the local populations. When DeSoto traveled, he brought with him hundreds of pairs of iron shackles and collars, which allowed him to enslave large portions of the population easily. When it became clear that De Soto was not going to find anything akin to the Aztec Empire, he decided instead to just start killing everybody in his way. One of the reasons that the De Soto expedition was so devastating was because he fought in a manner unlike what the native tribes would have expected. As an example, for several Indian tribes, the warfare season had passed when De Soto encountered them. The Native Americans had incorrectly assumed that, as it was in campaign season, the Spanish came in peace. This would prove to be a critical error and provided De Soto with a distinctive advantage. The native population were not often expecting a fight and were completely unprepared when it came. This, in combination with disease, decimated the Mississippi Indian tribes. De Soto himself would never complete his expedition, dying somewhere near modern Louisiana in 1541. But the damage that he had left behind was already done. There is evidence to support that the Mississippi tribes never fully recover from their encounters with De Soto. Archaeological evidence supports this and suggests that major cultural changes occurred to these tribes. Several of these vibrant chiefdoms that De Soto encountered were just completely gone by the time that the French began exploring the lower Mississippi Valley in the 1670s. Those groups that survived generally became something completely different from what they had been prior to De Soto. The other major expedition into North America during that time was that of Francisco Vasquez de Coronado. De Coronado, as many conquistadors did, believed that all Indian people had large quantities of gold and silver, like the Aztecs did. 
Along with 300 men, Coronado marched into the future United States in 1540. Much as in the same vein as DeSoto, Coronado brought with him both disease and violence. Marching north through the plains, Coronado continued to war with the Pueblo tribes. The Pueblo tribes should not be thought of as a united front in any meaningful way. They had different languages between the tribes, different political cultures, and typically very little in common with each other. However, the threat of Coronado and its conquistadors did push the tribes into something of an alliance against the common Spanish threat. Unable to defeat the powerful Spanish army, Pueblo tribes led the Spanish north with the promise of vast riches. Now, the Pueblo Indians knew that they were leading the Spanish basically into the middle of nowhere and hoped that the lack of water and food would take care of the enemy for them. Eventually, the Spanish themselves figure out that they were being taken on a death march and proceeded to kill and torture the Pueblo guides. Coronado, hungry for revenge at this point, then proceeds to march all the way back, leaving destruction and terror in his wake. Coronado would return to the relative safety of northern Mexico, having not found any of the great riches that he had so sought. Soto and Coronado have in common the fact that their missions were, in all regards, complete and utter failures. Coronado's failure was so complete that he would be forced into bankruptcy and ultimately found himself being prosecuted by the Spanish crown for his treatment of the Pueblo Indians. This is going to have a major impact on both Spanish and Native American populations moving forward. On the part of the Spanish, their major expedition into the future United States had been a complete disaster. The riches of Central America and Mexico were nowhere to be found. There was no Aztec empire hiding in the future United States. They failed to find any significant sources of precious metals or gems. The failure of the expeditions did a great deal to convince the Spanish that future expeditions into North America were essentially nothing but a money pit. These failures, for the most part, bring an end to Spanish exploration of North America beyond modern-day Mexico. Disease from the Spanish led to the collapse of many of the tribes and would completely change the culture of the tribes in the Mississippi Valley. The memories of Spanish brutality would also long remain into the future and would become an important aspect when looking at future interactions between Europeans and native populations in Mississippi. Following Coronado and DeSoto, expeditions into the future United States were mostly done with one notable exception. During the 1560s, Spanish interest in Florida would rise. The Spanish would establish a foothold in Florida that they are going to continue to hold for approximately 250 years. The story of Spanish Florida begins in the 1550s. A major problem by this point had emerged for the Spanish. Piracy. French and English pirates would attack Spanish ships, steal their belongings, and return to Europe to sell them as their own. This had become such a problem that by the later part of the 1550s, nearly half of Spanish revenue was being lost to pirates. The most problematic location for the Spanish was in the Caribbean, as it proved to be where the Spanish were in fact the most vulnerable. And there's two reasons why. First, it represents the shipping lane that Spain used to move their most valuable goods. If there was a good place to try to seize large quantities of valuables, the Caribbean was that place. The other problem for the Spanish is that the Caribbean was particularly treacherous. Shallow shoals and massive storms frequently caused problems for Spanish shipping. And this makes sense because just like today, the summer months could often produce powerful hurricanes that would descend upon the Caribbean. 
The result of this is that the Florida coast became littered with shipwrecks. The local Khalsa Indians in the area would take advantage of this and would seize huge amounts of precious metals as well as slaves, and now castaway sailors, that could be turned into slaves. The solution for the Spanish was to establish fortifications along the Florida coast. This would assist the Spanish in defending the dangers straight from pirates and would allow them to quickly recover the bullion and the men who washed up along the coastline. Under the command of Pedro Medina's de Avilas, the Spanish began working towards establishing a fort in Florida. The effort became doubled in 1565 upon learning that French Huguenots had established a small base near what is modern-day Jacksonville. Further complicating things is the fact that the Huguenots are Protestant. If you have listened to basically any of the episodes on this podcast, you are well aware that the Spanish are not friends to the Protestants during this time. For Diavilas, this just could not stand. Early on September 20th, 1565, Diavilas went ahead and attacked the French base. What ensued was an absolute slaughter. Of the nearly 300 Frenchmen, a huge number were killed during the battle. Those who surrendered, expecting to find mercy, were soon to be very disappointed. De Avilas ordered their hands to be bound and for them to be put to the knife. The massacre was complete and total. Concerned about a return to the French, De Avilas founded a fortified town at St. Augustine, about 40 miles north of the location of the French base. St. Augustine remains today and is a city of about 14,000 people, which is now also part of the greater Jacksonville area. The city is the oldest continually inhabited European town in what would become the future United States. Diavilas built several other forts up and down the Florida coast and into modern-day South Carolina. Diavilas would start a Jesuit mission as far north as the Chesapeake. The mission was short-lived, however. A year after it was founded in 1570, the guide that the Jesuits relied on led a surprise attack against the group, which resulted in the death of all eight adult Jesuits and the destruction of their church. The Spanish decided not to attempt to reestablish the fort and instead left the Chesapeake area for good. This is going to become an important fact in the future, as the Jesuit settlement is in the same general region as where Jamestown would be settled in 1607. Settling Jamestown would have been far more difficult, if not impossible, had the Spanish maintained a presence in the Chesapeake. Before we move on, I want to make a couple quick notes just for you to keep in mind for some future episodes. The Indian tribe that led the attack against the Jesuits were probably members of the Powhatan Confederacy a powerful confederacy of tribes in the Virginia area under the rule of their paramount chief, Powhatan. We are going to spend just a moment discussing Powhatan today before spending a whole ton of time over the next few weeks with a very large focus on him as we talk about Jamestown. So consider this to be more of a sneak preview into one of the more critical players in early Jamestown history than anything that's that important for today. I also want to make a quick note about the guide who led the surprise attack. His name is Don Luis. Now, you don't really need to worry about him right now, but he is going to reappear in the future in a very interesting way. So, stay tuned. While the Spanish at one point were running seven forts throughout Florida and South Carolina, during the Anglo-Spanish War, there was serious concern over English attacks on those forts. In order to give themselves a better chance, the Spanish abandoned all their forts except for St. Augustine, where all of the men were consolidated. 
The hope was that by having a larger force at St. Augustine, it would give the Spanish a better overall chance of defending their holdings in Florida. This left St. Augustine as the sole Spanish holding in Florida. During the 1590s and into the early 1600s, Franciscan friars arrived in Florida and set up a series of missions throughout the Florida and Georgia area. This would lead to a prolonged period of tension between the friars and the native populations. Often, forced conversion and brutality took place, and many of the Indians' native culture was lost in this vein promoting the Christian morality. These pressures would lead to rebellions by local Indian tribes in 1597 as well as 1656. As becomes a common theme here, whenever there are encounters between Europeans and native populations, disease will run rampant through the native people. This was no different. I do also quickly want to note that the Spanish have a presence as well in modern-day New Mexico by the end of the 16th century. And I mention it more in the interest of completeness than anything else, as it really does not affect our story much at this point. So, be aware that it exists, and for now, that's all you need to worry about. The Spanish are going to end up controlling Florida for the next 250 years. In the 1820s, Spain was struggling to maintain control of its much more lucrative colonies in South America, and was left with little choice but to negotiate the ceding of the colony to the United States. While the Spanish holding of Florida was the most significant European colony prior to Jamestown, we would be remiss if we did not discuss earlier English efforts to colonize the future United States. For that, we are going to turn our attention to the English colony at Roanoke. Perhaps no single colony in the Americas has had more of a legend grow around it than the colony at Roanoke. Roanoke was the first attempt at a permanent English colony in North America. Interest for the English in establishing colonies in the Americas really began in 1576, when Martin Forbisher began seeking the Northwest Passage. The Northwest Passage was a sought-after route that would have easily allowed Europeans to travel from the Atlantic into the Pacific without having to go around the Horn of South America. It was two years later in 1578 when Sir Humphrey Gilbert got a patent from Elizabeth to establish the first North American colony for England. Sadly, for Sir Humphrey Gilbert, his time in the show is going to be very short as he is going to drown off the coast of Newfoundland in 1583. The patent that Gilbert had was then picked up by his half-brother, Sir Walter Raleigh. Raleigh managed to get the interest of several high-profile explorers, including his cousin, Richard Greenville, as well as our old friend, Sir Francis Drake. Following an initial trip to scout the area in 1584, a more major expedition took place in 1585, when Raleigh sent roughly 100 men to settle on Roanoke Island. Raleigh went to all the lengths that he thought necessary to make for a good colony. For instance, he was sure to send people along who could be interpreters. And likewise, he sent two men, specifically Thomas Herod and John White, to describe the local flora and fauna. White, an artist, was sent specifically to draw everything that he discovered. The new land was to be called Virginia, in honor of their virgin queen, Elizabeth. Roanoke Island is located just off the coast of modern-day North Carolina. The island itself was protected from the dangerous shoals, which Raleigh and others thought would help protect it from Spanish attack. And remember, right at this time, a lot is going on. This is right around the time of the Anglo-Spanish War breaking out. 
So many of the decisions regarding the location of the settlement and the eventual support of the colony are going to be based on that ongoing conflict with Spain. The problem with the island, however, is that it did not produce conditions conducive to good farming. Likewise, those shoals which protected the island from Spanish attack, well, they also made it very difficult for the English to land supplies on the island. For their part, the colonists figured that the local Alequin Indians would go ahead and feed them, and initially this proves to be correct. The local Indians did help the colonists survive. However, as time went on, the colonists began demanding more and more food, which took a serious hit on the supplies held by those tribes. With the local Indians no longer interested in giving assistance, the colonists, led by Ralph Lane, led an attack against the local chieftain Wingaina. Lane managed to kill Wingaina and several of his deputy chiefs in the attack. Now, the hope had been that by launching the attack and killing their chieftain, the locals would be terrified of the English settlers. The problem, however, is that Lane guessed incorrectly. As one might expect, the local Indians were not amused by the sudden attack, and far from being terrified, the Indians simply packed up and left. The colonists, who were depending on those Indians, were suddenly left without supplies, and soon starvation set in. In June of 1586, Francis Drake stopped by the Roanoke colony, following a raid on Spanish ships in the West Indies. When he arrived at the island, instead of a thriving colony, he found the colonists starving and most definitely tired of their expedition. Drake was left with little choice and transported the colonists back to England. In what will end up being an important twist, weeks after Drake evacuated Roanoke, Richard Greenville arrived at the island to resupply the beleaguered colony. Greenville was unaware that everybody had already left to return to England, and Greenville decided to leave 15 soldiers behind to hold the fort while they figured out what to do next. By this time, Raleigh had basically begun to lose all his interest in colonization. However, the other investors, including the artist John White, believed that the mission to colonize North America was still worth pursuing. The decision was made that the better plan was to establish a colony near the Chesapeake. The plans for the new colony were largely influenced by John White based on what had gone wrong in the first colony. This time, the focus was much more on getting a foothold in the colony as opposed to the search for material wealth. This meant that the focus was going to be on establishing agriculture, not seeking gold. Also, unlike the first expedition, this time the plan was to send families. On the first expedition, the 100 men who went were just that, men. This time, around 117 people made the journey, and they are going to include men, women, and children. The thought was that the new location would provide better agricultural opportunities for the settlers. Once the settlers had a foothold, the search for material wealth could then begin. Beyond that, nobody was really feeling great about the local natives, who were still understandably upset at the prior group of settlers for killing their chieftain. Settling to the north seemed to be a much more prudent idea. The new colony was to be named Raleigh after Sir Walter Raleigh. Sounds great, right? What could possibly go wrong with this much more thought-out plan? Right? Well, as it turns out, just about everything could go wrong. Problems began immediately with the expedition. If you recall from episode 1.3, relations between the English and the Spanish in 1587 were not exactly stellar. The Anglo-Spanish War had been going on for the past two years, and we are only one year away at this point from the Spanish Armada itself. 
Those transporting the colonists were anxious to join the fight against the Spanish that was currently going down in the Caribbean. Remember those soldiers that Greenville had left behind on Roanoke? Well, prior to landing in the north, the master pilot, Simone Fernandez, was instructed to stop off at Roanoke and pick up the soldiers left behind by Greenville. Unfortunately, those soldiers were nowhere to be found at all. In fact, all that was there was a skeleton. There was no sign of any local native activity either. No signs of agriculture. Nothing. The island was all but abandoned. Is this starting to sound like the beginning of a horror movie? Well, let's keep going. The situation becomes far more complicated when Fernandez claimed that, due to the season, continuing to the north of the Chesapeake was just now out of the question. So, Fernandez let the colonists know that they had arrived in their new home, and that it was time to get off the ship. There is much debate out for why Fernandez made this decision, but no consensus appears to exist. There is some belief that he had planned all along to leave the colonists in Roanoke. There are even some that believe that Fernandez really did want to beat the bad weather, but either way, the colonists were going to be left on an island that was looking far less habitable. Just to make that situation even a little bit better, in late July of 1587, colonist George Howe was killed by natives while searching for crabs. Unsurprisingly, the colonists were not happy at how events were unfolding and had little interest in hanging around Roanoke. Against his better judgment, John White, who had been named governor of the colony, made the decision to return to England for supplies and reinforcements. White sailed from Roanoke on August 27, 1587, leaving behind approximately 115 colonists. White had always planned to return to the colony. However, upon returning to England, White would find himself stalled for the foreseeable future. The Spanish sailed their armada in 1588, and suddenly White was unable to leave England to return to the Americas. It wasn't until August of 1590 that a relief vessel got through to Roanoke. By this point, there was literally nothing left. There were no signs of a fight. There were no bodies. There was nothing. The only clue left behind was the word Croatan, carved into a doorpost, which was referencing a nearby island where the group's interpreters were from. As I'm guessing you already know, there is a reason why the Lost Colony of Roanoke is in fact called a Lost Colony. Nobody from the expedition was ever found, and clues about the fate of the colonists were few and far between. Whatever did happen to those colonists has become the thing of legend and speculation. I'm going to take just a moment to talk about this speculation. First up, there is basically no historical evidence for any of this. I'm only talking about it because, well, I can't. But for a moment at least, please be aware that the history I'm talking about here is not really history. It's just that. It's speculation. The two most logical possibilities that I see for the fate of the colony is that the colonists abandoned Roanoke and moved to another location, dying off slowly along the way. The other possibility is that Powhatan, the leader of the nearby Powhatan Confederacy, decided that he had had enough of the English and went ahead and slaughtered them. Now, Powhatan himself is going to take credit for the destruction of the colony. However, at that point, he was telling his newly acquired hostage, John Smith, about it, and probably did have a good reason to lie. We have spent the last few minutes talking about how local Indians had been harassing the settlers, so it really isn't that out of the question that Powhatan was, at a minimum, involved in the disappearance. 
As I mentioned a moment ago, keep the name Paladin in your mind. We're going to spend literally a ton of time with him in the coming weeks. Now, just for a moment, let's go ahead and leave the realm of possible and enter into the realm of legend. In preparation for this episode, I did come across several really interesting theories of what happened to the colony, and we're going to take just a minute to share some of my favorites from that journey. My personal favorite theory is that it was aliens. You see, the colony being separated from England made for easy pickings by a group of aliens that needed people to experiment on and probe. This, of course, explains why they disappear without a trace. After all, a group of aliens coming to abduct the colonists surely wouldn't want to leave signs of their actions, now would they? There are a lot of other fun possibilities as well. I was also a fan of the weird cult-like supernatural ritualistic murder angle. It was both fun and different than the other stuff out there. And for those of you who are now pounding out an email telling me that I am referring to American Horror Story as a source, seriously guys, I was just talking about aliens. The point of all this is that the sources are exceedingly thin, and other than some comments by Powhatan, we seriously have no idea what really happened. So, with that, let's get back to some actual history. Following the failure of the Roanoke colony, interest in colonization subdued in England. Interest would not begin to increase again until 1604, when the Anglo-Spanish War ended. The next attempt to colonize would be Jamestown. The planning of the Jamestown settlement was directly influenced by the failure of the Roanoke colony, and many of the lessons learned from Roanoke would help ensure that future attempts at colonization were at least marginally more successful. So there you have it. By the end of the 16th century, the Spanish were, by far, the dominant power in the Americas. They had the largest range of all European nations, with an empire extending from South America to Florida. As for the future United States itself, the Spanish have influence in both Florida and New Mexico by the time that the English arrive in Jamestown. The English themselves were no strangers to North America either, following a failed attempt at establishing a colony in Roanoke during the 1580s. This also means that the Native Americans had some level of contact with Europeans prior to the arrival of the English at Jamestown. While there may be a question as to the amount of that contact, the local Indian populations were at a minimum aware of the European presence. In some cases, the relationship between Europeans and Indians were already quite poor. Spanish brutality had been a serious problem during the 16th century. We have spent the past six episodes of this podcast talking about what the world was like in the 16th century. The single biggest takeaway I hope you have concerning the 1500s is an idea of the radical amount of change that was present in all parts of society. Political, social, economic upheaval is everywhere as the Renaissance spreads throughout Europe. This era is often portrayed as being the beginning of the modern era in European history, and I think that rings true. The world we live in today can trace its roots back to the 1500s. How does all this play into our story? It is these changes that are going to help create the future United States. The movements that begin during the 16th century are going to directly lead to the Enlightenment in the 18th century. During the 17th century, it's going to be men like John Locke who are going to begin rewriting the enlightened texts that are so central for men like Jefferson, Madison, and Adams. The ideals that come out of the Enlightenment are all going to be directly related to the events of the 1500s, 
it is the Renaissance that sets the stage for the Enlightenment to occur. In terms of religion and economics, the changes are going to be just as vast. In several episodes time, we are going to begin talking about places like Plymouth and the Massachusetts Bay Colony and the Puritans who are going to immigrate there. The Puritans are a direct result of the English Reformation. Their religious views and beliefs are going to have a lasting impression on how the people of the United States view and address religion. Regarding trade, it is through new and increasingly global economies that the trade is going to support the English colonies and allow them to thrive. At the same time, the limitations on the colonies of trade outside of England are going to play a part into the story that's going to lead up to the revolution as well. The 16th century, more than anything, was a time of massive change in Europe. All aspects of life were touched, and the changes affected all classes of society. The people who were leaving England to colonize the future United States lived in the shadow of these developments. This was their world, and it was these things that are going to determine how they think, what they believe, and it's going to be what they take with them to the Americas. Next time, we are going to start delving into the main story of this podcast, the political history of the United States. We are going to jump into that first colony, Jamestown, in 1607. But before we can fully do that, we are going to spend an episode going back and looking at that first group of settlers who's going to end up going to Jamestown. Who were they? What were their motivations for coming to the Americas? What are their systems and traditions that they are going to bring along? That is our story for next time. To wrap up this week, I did want to mention that beyond our website at uspoliticalpodcast.com that we also do have a Facebook group. Now, I mention that because, as you may have noticed, we are one week behind on this episode, and I mentioned I was unable to record one last time because of the holiday. Well, more specifically, I had actually spent my holiday across the ocean in Paris. And, well, in Paris, of course, I had to go check out some of the big locations of American history there. So, I've put a couple pictures up on the Facebook group that I think you guys might enjoy. So go check it out, search for the political history of the United States, and it should pop up for you. Until next time, I want to thank you guys, as always, for listening, and we will be back here in two weeks' time to jump into the story of Jamestown.